Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, and of course it's the fabulous Christopher. Chris, who have we got on today? Well, I thought that the ones that we've done recently together have been fairly depressing. I mean, we've done Holocaust recently, and we've done one on Nazism. So I thought we should do something a bit more fun. And what's more fun than uh, disgusting subjects? And um, I was talking to... Oh, yes, I was... Uh, talking to Richard Sugg, who has been on previously to talk about Disgust, who also wrote The Real Vampires and is finishing up uh, his history of Disgust. And we've come up, between us, we've come up with a great subject. So uh, Richard's back to talk to us. So uh, Richard, welcome. How are you? Many thanks. Yeah, very well. Full of disgusting subjects, some of which are pretty much unmentionable even by the standards of my book, as you'll find out in a few few weeks' time. But uh, yeah, plowing through it, nearly there. I've got to tell you, your last podcast went down really well, so I'm really glad you're back and we can talk about really gross and disgusting things. People are quite morbid. That's good. That's good, because I, I did have one person who's quite a friendly reader of mine that admitted she couldn't finish it, so uh, it's good that we've got an appetite for it in uh, in Britain. I think we should... Uh, I'm gonna, I think we should rock and roll, but I'm going to let Chris run this podcast, so I'm going to hand it over to him. Okay, so... Well, this one, this isn't so much about physical disgust. I don't think we don't talk about poo in any depth in this one. But it's true. But uh, it is fairly disgusting. When I was reading the, the chapter, it's absolutely disgusting. Talking of the which is Sir Lionel Lyde. Who is he and what were his plans? Yeah, so this is the start of a whole strange adventure in basically the destruction of English heritage by the people who now uh, are thought to be English heritage when you look at your kind of period drama. I used to live in St Albans, grew up there, and when I was 14, I got my first real bike from my lovely grandmother because I couldn't have afforded such a wonderful thing, gears, uh, silver paint, what have you, comfy saddle. So I used to ride a lot around St Albans, uh, around the lanes from the house, and about, I don't know, eight, nine, maybe 10 miles away, if you've got time in the summer, you just keep going and keep going. And sort of by accident, it was always very hard to find this place. You'd wind up in Ayer, St. Lawrence. So an Ayer, as you probably know, is about as small as you can get. I don't know if it's even quite a hamlet, but it's certainly not as big as a village. So you'd wind up quite high up as far as Hertfordshire ever gets uh, in this little Ayer with uh, a pub, the Brocket Arms, Shaw's Corner, the old home of George Bernard Shaw, 
who chose the right place there to hide away from everything because it, it really is very remote and curiously opposite the pub the Brocket Arms you've got this ruined church so it's really just a shell of a church it's sort of picturesque I suppose in a slightly gothic bats in the ivy uh owls in the moonlight kind of way but you're thinking okay so why have they got a ruined church and is there a church so if you rummage about in the uh woods and go across this foul muddy track you get to what for an English village or hamlet just looks horribly out of place it's this sterile white uh, uh neoclassical monstrosity of a church which looks like it was built to be Sir Lionel Lyde's private chapel and this was quite probably the case. So buried away in the mists of the late 18th century is a story in different versions uh, but broadly the, the clues all point to the same uh, motivation and habit of English landowners that he'd got a grand house he'd just built uh, off his money from slavery, he had at least one plantation uh, farmed by enslaved labour for tobacco in Virginia, was heavily involved with the, the merchant company enslaving goods generally. And uh, he'd got everything he needed, huge big house, lots of land, but there was something in the way of his view. There was an unsightly blot on the landscape, aka the medieval church, which I should add, uh, while I remember, housed uh, Templar bones and monuments. So this was a pretty venerable piece of English heritage. Uh, which Lyde simply began knocking down uh, to get it out of his way. So one of the things that struck me with this in terms of the history of disgust, it was the mid 18th century that invented most versions of disgust that we know now, particularly snobbery, uh, hygienic disgust around cleanliness and baths and privacy. And yeah, this guy is a long way away from anybody that he could probably hear or smell or see, but he manages to be disgusted by the sight of the church. I mean, possibly by the bells ringing, perhaps he doesn't like those, I don't know. So there's different versions of this because it's so far back and you tend to not get records. One of the cruel ironies is that when you knock down the church, you've destroyed the records as well, probably. Uh, maybe you, you take them out beforehand, but they often end up in the, the property of the landowner. So either he started knocking it down um, and got all the way, or he was told not to knock it down by the Bishop of Lincoln, but it was too late. Um, and then as a kind of penance, he built this god-awful neoclassical pile uh, back in the woods. But when you read the, the kind of toadying Georgian press around 1779, um, you're looking at this kind of great philanthropist and benefactor who's just decided to build a lovely new church out of the generosity of his own heart. And there's, you know, a big, fate to open it and feasting and drinking and band and what have you um, out in the sunshine. Uh, whereas in reality, yeah, he's, he's destroyed <laughs> a pretty impressive piece of, of English heritage. And this this was, I, I first got on and thought, you know, this is crazy. I remember telling people this story in my teens and thinking Lyde must be just some weird kind of atypical character. What I realised presently uh, was, yeah, he was atypical in that he worked on a very small scale and he didn't completely get away with it. But this was going on all over England, uh, 17th to the, the 19th centuries. wonder if I can get away with that today. That block of flats looks ugly. Let's take it down. Yeah, quite. I mean, the, the minor, minor bit of, you know, addition to your house in the garden. And, uh, you know, you're looking at weeks of 
planning applications and potential litigation. And, yeah. We're sticking to the 17th and 18th centuries and uh, we tend to get a lot of families who, well, they gain a lot of money. The important question here is, I mean, where are they all getting it from? Yeah, a tremendous amount. And it's, it's only in the last, I think, 10, 12 years, um, tremendous amount comes from slavery. And this is now being listed and actually the precise kind of monuments, not just houses, but also artifacts in parks are being listed by English Heritage, uh, National Trust and so forth. So it's finally coming clear, but it it, uh, it does have a feeling of coming, you know, very, very late on, a bit like the whole Edward Colston uh, statue debacle, uh, which in itself, of course, only came off the, the George Floyd case in America, really, and the, the Black Lives Movement. So, yeah, tremendous amount of money is coming from slavery. Later on, there's an irony in that awful lot of money, of course, comes from the Industrial Revolution. You live out there in the lovely, clean, quiet, peaceful countryside, but you're getting your money from who knows what, you know, god-awful, sweated labour factories, and also the rents of some squalid slums across across Britain and a lot of your workers in Birmingham, London, Sheffield, etc., are only there because they've been forced out of the English countryside when you knocked down their village. Well, yeah, I mean the the talking disgusting the the slums in London and Cent- uh, Manchester and Liverpool are just the horrific. Yeah, yeah, I mean some of them owned by the Church of England, you know, collecting colossal rents for slums where. You know, it was so damp it would almost rain if you lit a fire in the uh, in the building. Um, so we've got quite a lot of in inverted commas dirty money coming in. How do the aristocracy and the gentry launder it and make it more acceptable? Well, this is what's fascinating about the 18th century is that they invent disgust in its modern sense, um, and they also, as you know, any kind of watcher of period drama can attest they invent polite society of course all your kind of Jane Austen which is written um, in the in the Regency period but it's often looking back to the 18th century is full of this very very polite society and the nice way to remember this I found is that polite and polish are of course the same roots and the 18th century loves polish which of course nicely slides across all your woodwork your carriage panels uh, your lovely high ceilinged rooms. So all that extra light you get in these Georgian uh, buildings with their Georgian windows accentuates the polish uh, of your furniture, your galleries, uh, perhaps your books, but also I think people's clothing, uh, silk particularly, teeth, uh, more care going into teeth. I uh, probably don't want to go into the horrors of live tooth transplantation if you ruined your own with chocolate. But um, yeah, a higher level of polish across the body as well as across all your property. So the the, the basic answer to that question is land, Uh, but really within the land that you were stealing a lot of the time from your local villagers, you've got all this very, very powerful drive towards polish and towards a whole kind of rhetoric um, of cleanliness, you know, that the 18th century, one of the crucial things about this whole area is how arrogant the 18th century was, that if they didn't like something, they'd just knock it down. And there was no sense of English heritage and medieval buildings being lovely things to cherish. They were crooked, they were warped, they were porous, 
uh, and suddenly you've got all these clean lines, all these new uh, neoclassical symmetries. So, yeah, I think a lot of their disgust was directed at the dirty, superstitious, backward, often Catholic past. And the laundering kind of happens uh, in, in the sense of all of this looks very polite, grand, beautiful, but, but also in lots of subtle ways, this whole rhetoric of polish, this rhetoric of cleanliness, which drives on into the, into the 19th century. Let's talk about some of the other landowners. I mean, this this issue with this church has, has got me quite riled up. I'm a little bit worried that you're going to start telling us other stories of things that might make me a little bit more angry, which is why I'm a little bit sceptical about asking you the question. But tell us a little bit more about some of the other landowners who are much worse. Yeah, well, just to dodge over the border for once, um, it's worth knowing that none of, almost none of this happened in Wales. And very little of it happened in Scotland in a typical sense. Of course, you did get all the clearances um, in the 18th and 19th centuries in the Highlands, which were atrocious. But um, the, the usual kind of, right, I want to improve either my house or the view. This is what's really staggeringly arrogant, is that you've got a great lot of parklands. You can't possibly hear anybody uh, or smell them. But Something's in the way of your view. So over the border for a change in Scotland, 1761, which was a vintage year for vandalising British heritage, uh, we've got the village of Tyningham in East Lothian. And this had sat on the same site for at least 600 years. Uh, it's Church of St Baldred, who died in 757, uh, was one of three possible locations for the saint's bones. So even more reverent than this uh, church in St Lawrence with the Crusader things in it. And along comes Thomas Hamilton, 7th Earl of Haddington, and he's landscaping the grounds of his house in 1761. And I give an account here from, I'm just trying to check my date on this, yeah, 1893, so late Victorian account of what he did. The church was in great part pulled down and destroyed. The churchyard ploughed through, the gravestones taken away, the village itself improved, and so but a few fragments remain of what was probably the finest parochial example of Romanesque architecture in Scotland. That, of course, referring to the, to the church. But yeah, um, in case I read that too quickly, the village itself improved. I mean, it was knocked down. You know, and this is one of the claims that you'll see that's pretty much impossible to verify, that they reinstall the inhabitants in a model village. Um, sometimes the model village will be in a valley, so of course much damper than where they lived before. Sometimes people will visit it nowadays and describe it as horribly sterile. Sometimes in the middle of the English countryside, according to the whims of picturesque romantic landowners, the cottage will be Swiss cottages instead of English ones. Uh, and so it goes on. But whatever happens, of course, you know, there's no point glossing over the fact that before you improve the village, if you do, and we just don't have the accounts of the tenants on this, uh, you've got to knock it down. You know, you've knocked down people's lives, memories, uh, heritage, and so on. But uh, here, in this, this case, you've also ploughed through the graveyard. Hold on, that's really disrespectful. I was trying to find my mute button there, just wasn't, wasn't fast enough. But how disrespectful is that? Wow, that gives me... Yeah, yeah. It's hard to think of anything that would get people's backs up now more than desecration of just one grave. You know, this is the kind of thing that makes big headlines if it ever happens, sometimes for racial reasons, whatever, um, but for the whole village. And you, you can well imagine um, there were rumours in the 19th century that the bones of soldiers on British battlefields were ground up for fertiliser 
And apparently bones do make very good fertilizer. Uh, um, yes, they do. Uh, sorry to add this tidbit in there and to bring a little bit of depression into there. But yes, they were ground up and used, for example, in concentration camps and in the fields and they were used to fertilize the fields. So, yes, they were. Yeah. And possibly the you know British soldiers as well. So, yeah, in this case, uh, quite possibly this is where the dead ended up um, being eaten by somebody in the form of bread uh, a bit later on. Who knows? And the, the, the tragic um, irony that suddenly came to me was uh, that the gentry and the, who own all this land have absolutely no qualms about destroying the property of the poor. And the same people that come out in, and complain when the railways come through and start chasing um, surveyors who are looking, who said, well, we're really sorry, we need to put the line straight through your through your garden. And they fight it so vociferously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another phase of, of the whole thing. I think most of what I was looking at, it predates, of course, the, you know, the start of even the basic railways. So one thing bearing in mind, worth bearing in mind is they didn't have any kind of noise pollution to worry about, but they were kind of looking for something to be disgusted by. So merely the sight of the village, the sight of the villagers, um, that's pretty much it, apart from the church bells, you know, there was nothing else. <laughs> to bother them but whole roads would get diverted whole villages destroyed churches you name it i mean there was there was almost nothing they would stop at can i be uh, very disgusted sorry congress it's just the subject of the day i mean it's, it's up for grabs i was i was just going to say that uh can i be disgusted by because this just brought up a memory for that chris just triggered can i be disgusted and love the elizabeth line at the same time considering they destroyed two of my favourite music venues and a club that I used to frequent at when I was younger. Is that Am I allowed to do that? I think so, especially given how long it took them, didn't it? I remember many years after they were supposed to have finished it. It was ridiculous and it breaks my heart because those are two absolutely fantastic music venues. So Elizabeth Lyon, I'm disgusted with you, but love you because you're fantastic at the same time. Beautiful. I love this. My favourite line. God, I'm such a nerd. Um, <laughs> but um, when we, moving on quickly from my railway nerd, secret railway nerd in, when we think of uh, uh, well, my ex-wife, when, when whenever she talks about Jane Austen, she automatically brings up Colin Firth coming out of the ornamental lake in a very wet shirt. Alina's agreeing. But Castle Howard Lake, there's something, I feel like a Scooby-Doo episode, but there's something ominous at the bottom of Castle Howard Lake, isn't there? So I just need to run by you because I should know this. But uh, before we get into this disgusting story, Colin Firth coming out of his uh, out of the lake in his shirt, which does seem to have a powerful effect on the gentle ones, uh, from what I can gather. This is this is Castle Howard, is it, where they filmed it? I, I no idea. I just I just remember the, the nice ornament. Yeah, it was, it was sort of like more like the ornamental ornamental lake is such a one of those things that you yeah. link to Georgian houses and stuff. And yeah, for me it was a, a segue. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's that. not the Loch Ness monster, but it's it's arguably worse. So Castle yeah. Howard is is the is not the only case of this, but I think it's the really archetypal case. So it kicks off just before the dawn of the 18th century, starts up in 1699. Of course, it's an absolutely monumental building project. Uh, takes decades. I mean, it, it runs on until 1811 in total. And in the process of this, um, they need to clear a bit of space, or they think that they do. Uh, and so the entire village of Henderskel is simply destroyed. 
they're not rehoused, they're not given a model village. We do not know where they went. One reason we don't know where they went is because the only records existing are in the possession of Castle Howard, uh, but they only date from 1758. Uh, and this happened mainly in the early 18th century. So in a wonderful kind of symbol of connivance between church and state, the two big pillars of the establishment, the uh, project of the Earl of Carlisle, third Earl of Carlisle, involves destroying the village and the medieval church, but it also involves a bit of liaison with the Archbishop of York, uh, who happens to own, or rather the, the uh, bishopric owns uh, a few acres in the position which is going to be the lake. So yeah, the, the Archbishop trades his useless acres for something convenient in, I think it might be Sheffield, which you can actually get money from. Uh, and there you go, job job done. And this, this of course, is probably, it vies with um, High Clare Castle in Hampshire for the most iconic stately home in, in England. I mean, the only other one would be Blenheim, but the fact is that Blenheim doesn't get shown on television, of course, to the same degree. You've got uh, two versions of Brideshead Revisited filmed at Castle Howard, and then you've got uh, Bridgerton, as I understand it. I haven't seen this wonderful arse-licking Tory soap opera yet. But um, yeah, um, this, this kind of great iconic monument of Englishness, which of course conjures in Oxford as well with um, Anthony Andrews and Jeremy Irons, and they were both very young actors uh, at that time, is founded on this act of absolutely colossal uh, and in incredibly arrogant destruction, that you, you don't want this, and you not only destroy it, but you just bury the evidence. And I, I have to say, I've not managed to nail it down, I'm not convinced I'm going to, but I've been wondering through this whole kind of crazy journey, is there anything underneath Blenheim Palace? because it would be very hard to find it now if there was. I've been hunting, but, but I don't think any archeologists are gonna go, you know, smashing up the floors of this place, uh, which the pompous current owner always talks about as a great piece of educational English heritage. But I wouldn't be entirely surprised if, uh, yeah, a few villagers uh, met their, their death knell under the construction of that. I mean, I think it's a little bit more common than we think when it comes down to flooding certain villages. I mean, for example, in Poland, it was more of a necessity. I'd like to say that they flooded beautiful villages because they're all a bunch of communistic assholes. But it, it is out of necessity because so Chris is laughing because uh, I use the word communistic assholes. But it, it is, for example, a, a need to create more I'm looking for the right word here. Life within the area, for example, fishing, uh, creating more jobs that will be able to be worked out on on these uh, on these reservoirs and lakes and things like that. Mm. But it is, like I said, really horrific to think about having a whole village destroyed just mm. for a stupid lake. Yeah, well, they've done that, of course, in Britain, and they've done it. They did it um, in, I think, somewhere in Dorset or the southwest for. Um... A military project didn't they during the war where they sent yeah. them out and i think they probably told them they were going to be coming back and they didn't i've been i think i've been to that ruined village it's quite eerie um, that's in the salisbury on salisbury Plain. that's right yeah that's sort of classic military territory um but yeah you you, you know you, this is this is one thing and it's bad enough but it's when this power is concentrated into the hands of actually a lot of the time just one single person you know it's purely the whim of this character who of course 
a lot of the time sits in um, the House of Lords, so has a certain degree of power, uh, along with all his peers, over any acts of enclosure and so forth, which are getting uh, vaster and more powerful from, from the late 18th century on. But it's, it's not always just like one individual. We've got the Coventry family who rear up quite quite significantly. Yes. Uh, significantly. Yeah, this, this goes down the generations, in fact. You know, they, they kind of um, enshrine disgusting behaviour as a, as a family tradition, you could say. Um, and yeah, the, the Coventrys uh, keep, keep going and there are various different ways to discuss it when you think you've, you've seen the worst. Um, so it kicks off with, let me just get the exact date here. Yeah, typical kind of period, the heyday of uh, 18th century destruction, 1750s. It's the sixth Earl of Coventry. It's always very hard to remember who these people are because they don't have an actual name. But the sixth Earl of Coventry um, smashes to pieces his local church at Croom in Worcestershire. Uh, and here we get a character who rears his ugly head time and again. Capability Brown is one of those names that if anybody knows it from the 18th century, along with, you know, George III, uh, Jane Austen, Dr. Johnson, they're going to know the name of Capability Brown. I'm going to drive a campaign in the next few months and years to have him renamed as Culpability Brown, because uh, this is far more appropriate to somebody who is responsible for constantly encouraging, facilitating, designing, uh, tempting landowners to smash down their local churches, villages that you can have. Let me show you the picture here on the table. You can have a lovely lake, you can have a lovely uh, model hermitage, and we can hire a hermit to pop in it. They don't cost too much. Um, this did actually happen in the 18th century, I'm sorry to say. Um, fake hermits, fake dairies for the ladies to play at being milkmaids. You name it, there was nothing silly they could not do. Um, so yeah, the, the first uh, phase of this is the sixth Earl of Coventry, uh, encouraging, encouraged by Capability Brown or Culpability Brown um, to knock down an existing Jacobean mansion, the entire village of Croom, home to 21 families. Uh, and the church, which I think was medieval, it's probably bound to be. Um, and the church goes, and I don't really know about Lyde's church for sure, how public it was in his lifetime. I suspect not very. Um, and it looks like it was designed to be his private chapel, whereby the Coventries made the new chapel pretty much just theirs. It was pretty much just their private chapel. And at this stage, I don't think their money came from slavery in the first phases. They went back away, the Coventrys, to interesting phase of um, the peerage. We've just been reeling now at the absolutely jaw-dropping revelations about Boris Johnson's honours list, um, including his father, um, having already knighted his brother and Gavin Williamson um, and his mate, Zach Goldsmith, who gives him free holidays. This kind of thing was going on rampantly in the time of James I. And one of the things that was disgusting about James I was him just flinging around money. He spent a third of the Crown's exchequer in any given year on jewellery. Um, so when he'd run out of money, he just decided to sell peerages. So um, the first Sir Thomas Coventry uh, owed this to James I being broke, basically, in 1606. Uh, then you get down to the other side of the 18th century and the eighth Earl, George Coventry, um, made his money from uh, slavery eventually, but on the way there, 
he married uh, for her money a woman called Emma Ligon, and it's quite clear that he was only after her money as he was soon busy having an affair with one Sophia Dubosche, who was at the time 13. Um, his legitimate son, uh, George William Coventry, uh, married into slave money a bit later via a woman called Harriet Anne Cockerell, uh, and vast amounts of slaving money was then pouring into uh, this family to sustain it through the 19th century. So we're going from village to village, family to family. Let's talk about the village of, and if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, the village of Nunham. Yeah, I'm not sure because it's spelled sometimes Nunham, um, Nunham or Nunham Courtenay. And it's an important place, actually. I've been doing some other research on the Georges, as in family of George III. And it was very much a place where they would entertain the royal family. So they've got a lot of cachet, not that far away from London um, in Oxfordshire. Also importantly now, um, the village is very much on the tourist trail of any global tourist or British tourist coming to see Blenheim. You know, so you've gone to Oxford, you have to do Oxford, of course, um, then you do Blenheim and you might as well take in Newnham Courtenay uh, while you're close by because it's in, it's in Oxfordshire. Um, this was another one from the vintage year of heritage vandalism, 1761. There should be a special wine, I think, with a you know ruined church on it, dated from 17, perhaps a port from 1761. Um, but yeah, First Earl Harcourt demolishes the entire village of Newnham and its medieval church and the 16th century manor house uh, to facilitate grandiose schemes for yet another house overseen by, you guessed it, Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Culpability Brown once again, who I, I've, I haven't actually counted how many of these is involved in, but it could run to 10, a dozen, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, another big one on the tourist trail. Um, one other one that's a bit interesting before I forget, um, because it also sits under the lake, the existing village in Buckinghamshire. Buckinghamshire was pretty bad for this, along with Oxfordshire. Uh, and Buckinghamshire, there's a village. Well, <laughs> is there a village? There's, this is this is the big question. Is Watton Underwood in Buckinghamshire a village? It's actually famous because um, John Gielgud used to live there. Uh, and then after Gielgud died, the coach house of the Grand Watton House was bought up by the Blairs, the Tom Ben's wife. Um, so it's got two claims to kind of 
English fame or Scottish, I suppose, you know, um, pop glare in there. And what's what's always fascinating with this is when you if it's if the place has got a church, then you can look it up and you get the church website. So I'm reading the um, very dubious write up here from the website of All Saints Church, which is incredibly by some oversight was not knocked down. Um, but it says, Watton Underwood is a tranquil village whose homes are, I quote, scattered across a wide area and are only reached by driveways or narrow roads. This makes Watton Underwood pretty unusual in that you cannot drive through it. But what makes it unusual is it's not actually a village. You know, it's a very loosely scattered selection of houses over a very wide area with no centre at all except for the church. It's only probably got the name of a village because of the church and ironically because of the house uh, built by Richard Greville, 1704 to 14, um, who dumped the village under his lake. Uh, and if you look up Watton Underwood, when you get the images for it nowadays, there's a strong chance you'll get an image of the jolly uh, annual, I think biannual fate, which happens at the house. So you have um, a village fate in the site which originated the destruction of the village or you have a village fate for a village which isn't a village, you know. Um, and it, it's, it's really dubious to me that somebody there doesn't know this. I mean, you, you cannot find this out very easily looking at the church site. When you go on the local heritage portal, you can find it out in two minutes. Um, so why don't they talk about it? You know, the, the original vicarage was 17th century. The existing vicarage is 19th century. That's exactly the sort of thing that a vicar with time on their hands is going to know about. They're going to know about the heritage of their vicarage. I mean, it almost certainly fell down because there were no parishioners, you know, so they rebuilt it in the, in the 19th century. So, yeah, when the, the Blairs get given a hard time by the Daily Mail for insensitive building projects, it's a bit rich in circumstances. The next one that we're going to come to, I found when I read it, I had to take a, a, a literal uh, double take and reread re it because the double standard of what happens to the church of, oh, here comes my bad pronunciation, Compton Muddock, is, is just, it's just awful, isn't it? Yeah, this is another, another culpability Brown affair. Um, about 1772, the 14th Baron Broke de Willoughby, or Brooke de Willoughby, another pronunciation question, uh, demolishes the medieval church of what was once Compton Murdoch. And again, just to improve his views, it's this whole kind of arrogant total landscape, you know, total environment of the of the Georgian period. Um, and yeah, if you look at the website again on um, Compton Burney, as it became, um, it blandly notes the vandalism of the old church. And then it adds wonderfully, this is, you couldn't make this up, it adds indignantly that in 1988, the site's former owner made a number of unauthorised alterations to the interior of the chapel, including the removal of some of the pews and the pulpit. Um, what actually happened, and you're not going to find this out on the website, is that uh, the church was demolished by the Willoughby family. They take the trouble to pull their own tombs out of it and shift them into their new chapel, which, in my opinion, I mean, Sue, you think you know, it's the ugliest chapel I've ever seen. Um, and having done this, they obliterate the adjacent graveyard. Um, and this has only come to light fairly recently, kind of literally, because there's been some uh, foundations dug for a sculpture in the park, which showed up three medieval burials. Uh, and 
only now, you know, this was 2019, four years ago, have they realized that the graveyard was much bigger than a map of 1738 indicates. So another kind of indication of how difficult it is to know about this destruction, what it involved, desecration of graveyards, corpses, uh, and how, how big it was. You know, it's very, very hard to find this out. So I've just realized the next question is about one of my favorite TV shows. I don't care what anyone says, you can jog on because Downton Abbey is one of the greatest period dramas ever created. And I've sat on my chair every, whenever it was released on a Sunday and I love it and I can't wait for them to bring out another film. Please do not destroy this for me. Tell us about the real Downton Abbey. Okay. But don't destroy it for block, me. If you could block Alina's ears at this point. I mean, any virtues I think that Downton Abbey ever had, which were exceedingly slight in the early days, were completely annihilated when they killed off by far the best looking of the sisters. I mean, no contest, no question. And she dies in what episode is it? I mean, come on, come on. I mean, who was who was scripting this garbage? Who chose that? Did she want to leave it? Perhaps she couldn't stand it. I mean, perhaps it was for her sake. I don't know. But um, yeah, in a purely objective sense, that was a very bad decision. Um, so the real Downton Abbey is, in one sense, Highclere Castle in Hampshire. Uh, and they seem to have been short of money for a long time because it doubled up as Totley Towers in Jeeves and Worcester, which is a terrific period drama, very hard to beat, in the 90s uh, with the inimitable Fry and Laurie. And it also doubled up often for firework classical concerts because I went to one of them in about 99. Um, and then before you know it, it's about as world famous as Castle Howard, or probably more so, I will guess more so, uh, for being Downton Abbey. You know, it is the face of Downton Abbey. And the true story behind this, um, time to block your ears here, um, is not at all savoury. And I think what's particularly ironic about this is that Downton Abbey, to me, what really stinks about it, and I'm surprised at, at, at um, Julian Fellows, really, because he wrote Gosford Park. You know, he wrote one of the best ever aristocratic period dramas because almost all the characters are utterly hateful. You know, there's no question about it. One of them's ashamed of his wife and trying to get money. Another one's trying to get money. Uh, the grieving widow is at it with one of the servants hours after her husband gets stabbed. You know, you can go on and on. Um, so Julian Fellows is responsible for this, but he's also responsible for this incredible myth of the idea of this organic society. It's symbolised by that kind of dance at Christmas, where they're all dancing together in the hall, you know, servants and toffs, all embracing, whirling around by the Christmas tree. And they've all kind of, you know, they've all got their own problems and they, they try and kind of organically help each other out, as it were. And this, this myth of, of organic society, yeah, if you were lucky, you might get a nice landowner like this, but it's purely at the whim of people who've got the power of almost life and death over you. I mean, if they send you away without a reference, you'll probably starve to death uh, in, in the Edwardian period. So the real Downton Abbey uh, lying behind this is the um, actual building, which was again founded on demolition uh, and again you know not on any kind of necessity but just a picturesque fancy um, it, it was quite an old castle originally it was remodeled a lot uh, it went back to the 14th century but none of that was really visible it was modernized in the 18th 19th centuries 
And in the process of this, just after 1770, the then owner, Henry Herbert, quite an interesting character, had the entire village of Highclere demolished and moved. Um, once again, Culpability Brown is on the scene here with his tempting glossy plans uh, amidst the tea and scones. And Herbert, I uh, guess, made Baron Porchester and then Earl of Carnarvon, who again is in a position to you know, assist other landowners with enclosing land and getting rid of unsightly villages. So yeah, the whole myth of this organic community is founded on a house which was founded on destroying the community. I mean, it, you know, it couldn't get much neater. So I owe you a few drinks for wrecking the lovely drama there. That's, in, that's why I went for Game of Thrones. Even Worcester is great. You, you can't argue with that. That's why I went for Game of Thrones, because it wrecks itself. Um. <laughs> oh, my God, that's a whole other... Chris, why did you bring that up? That gives me such a headache. The Daenerys is the queen of, of Westeros, it's full stop. Anyway, <laughs> this is, I think this is a debate we'll have afterwards. Um, but this is... Uh, this, as this is quite a, a large-scale um, problem, what well, say problem? It's something that's happening across the country. Why is it not more? Why is it at best sort of glazed over, but generally quite unknown as a as a as a happening? Yeah, it's a tricky question to answer. I I think obviously you're dealing with uh, the people who could write history in so many ways, who could write laws. Um, you're dealing with a time when the villagers had very, very little voice. Um, perhaps they couldn't, they couldn't write themselves. They might not have been able to read. And for whatever reason, I think it's, it's the question itself is more important than the answer. The question to me is, why is England in particular, and this isn't really a Welsh problem or a Scottish problem, um, why is it obsessed with toffs? You know, the past is this sanitised, version of period drama. And even that isn't accurate. I mean, if you go to um, Knoll House in the south of England, you know, one of the lovely bits about this, it gets itself into my chapter on toilets in the 18th century, because the lady of the house is asking her husband to improve the toilet. She's got a double seater toilet where her and, you know, somebody else are sat side by side of a morning, which is quite common uh, for a long time in Britain. And she's asking him to change it. You're thinking, okay, she wants the toilet made more private. She wants a single-seater toilet. No, she doesn't. She wants a treble-seater toilet so she can sit with two friends having a lovely chat. Uh, and this is a form of, of um, conferring your, your grace and your favour on your friends. You know, they're allowed to come into the toilet with you. So that sort of stuff hasn't made it onto period drama. I very much hope it will next year and they can slot that into Downton Abbey and not flush that out of, out of history. But to me, the, the absolutely iconic problem here is Jane Austen, really. Um, that, you know, if that there, are, there are old ladies in Bath who know more about Jane Austen than professors across America and Britain and Europe. This is a subject of obsession for the English. Uh, you can't keep track of how many films there have been made of Austen's work. And yet, in the midst of all this, almost nobody wants to talk about the central scandal of Austen's novels, and this is Mansfield Park. Uh, I think the only serious attempt to address this was done by Harold Pinter before he died in about 2000. Quite a good film version of it. And the great scandal of this is that in Mansfield Park, the driving crisis of the novel is the awful ethical dilemma and scandal of putting on a play. I mean, that is it, boiled down to its bones. 
you know, the, the poor Fanny, the sort of poor relation, but the one with the ethics, is terribly scandalised that they're putting on a play uh, whilst the landowner is, is away. And nobody seems bothered about the fact that the landowner is away at his slave plantation in the West Indies, that this is where his money comes from, that this is where all their idleness and polish and, you know, fine picnics and teas come from, is slavery. So it's right there. And if you wanted the absolute icon of everything that is distorting about British views of the 18th century, that's it. But it, it's almost never talked about. So, yeah, the, I think the bigger question for me is why uh, are people so addicted to this really distorted, if not false version of, of the 18th century? It's, it's, it never seems to go away. I think we all have this cloak over our heads because if it's not our time period, we can pretty much accept anything. But if it is our time period, something that we do study, I mean, we've brought this up on this podcast so many times that we can sit there and yell at the TV screen. So, well, that was wrong. That didn't happen. That's impossible. Why didn't this happen? Well, that clearly doesn't work. So, yes. Yeah, I, I think the, what fascinates me is how, you know, you're right, but how fast, how obsessed now we are with authenticity. You know, I, I was watching, um, what is it called? The Lost Kingdom. It's quite well done, I think, about um, Alfred and the Vikings coming in and et cetera, you know, in in uh, the ninth century. And it looks to you a, a glimpse or something you, it flashes across your eyes for about 12 seconds. You see, oh, look, that's a furry pig. That's a curly-coated pig. Did they get a deliberately authentic curly-coated pig, which hardly really gets a starring role? So they went to all that trouble but they're quite capable of then saying, okay, folks, um, problems at the moment, sorry, not problems. Uh, we've got a few issues with the Vikings, a lot of raping, looting, pillaging going on. Uh, and this gets in every period drama you can name. There'll be wonderful bits of authentic costume, design, cars, carriages, but still they've got issues with something, you know, 100 years ago, uh, 1100 years ago. Language is the bit they don't, you know, wouldn't have to pay for it either. Wouldn't cost them much. I, 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 they can stand me a bottle of wine. I, I tell them what to do. But, but yeah, language they, they don't, they don't carry it right. I just want to add one more thing before we move on to the next question. So you bring up language. That's just sparked something. So my institute and I uh, were putting together a new film to do the deportations into into Russia of of Poles. And we're concentrating on an area of Poland, Vilnius, which was Vilno back in those days. And they have a very distinct accent. And it's kind of Uh, very odd. And my guys went out and found people to read the testimonies with a Vilnius accent. Oh, well done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to make it that little bit more authentic. Yeah. And it's, it's incre- it really makes a massive difference being able yeah. to see that authenticity. Yeah, I mean, if you're Polish, it's, my mother, you know, used to watch with us um, All Creatures Great and Small. And she was always lamenting these fake Yorkshire accents because she came from Yorkshire, you know. Uh, she left it quite young, but she still was moving amongst all these real Yorkshire accents. And they, yeah, they're not, they're not the real thing. So at the moment, we're... I don't want to use the word work, but there's a lot of reevaluating history and backgrounds and things. Uh, the uh, the um, National Trust have been quite quick to discuss where some of the stately homes owners have got their money from. But our English Heritage and National Trust look now more open about what was basically has been um, vandalised for the construction of these houses, or are they still keeping it quite hushed? 
no, you, the documents are now out there. And what's good is that they're online. You know, you can get 100 pages, 200 pages, PDFs. And in areas where you get surprisingly little about light, uh, as I say, you know, it was just purely a local accident that I knew about this guy. Um, in areas like that, you can find very little on light, but the most that turns up on him now tends to be on these new National Trust English Heritage sites that are done in um, collaboration with academics and particularly people from Bristol, which kind of makes sense in terms of Bristol's historic slavery uh, powers. So yeah, they're, they're, they're doing a good job, I think, in lots of ways. One of the things, again, coming back to what we were just saying, really, that is a bit of a concern, and it's a little bit surprising that you're getting this from academics, is the language is not always what you'd expect. So if we go back to Croom, for example, um, where they lose the whole village and the medieval church uh, at the hands of Brown and his employer, it, it tells you on the National Trust site that Brown, I quote, swept away the local village. I, I don't, does that to you sound like it's destructive or does it sound like it's sort of cleaning something up? It, to me, it's a little bit ambiguous at least that it, it sounds a bit like you're cleaning the place up or cleansing it. Um, and when you get to the church, uh, it tells us that Brown removed Croom's medieval church, removed. I mean, what is it? Is, is it a, you know, a litter bin or a, or even a shed, I mean, you can remove it, you smash it down. There's no other way to do it, you know? It's, it's burly men with sledgehammers, I would have thought, in the 18th century, say, oh, you can do it. Uh, but clearly they did. <laughs> so yeah, it's very tidy, very quiet, very smooth. Um, not what the reality was actually like, especially if you're the villagers whose ancestors are, uh, are in the graveyard there and, you know, who's ancestors told you stories about the church in the days of etc so you know it's your it's your community i think your community when you when you didn't move more than say 30 miles in an outside of your village uh unless you were rich enough to do so then your church and your pub were a big deal i think that was you know that was your community and there was a, a kind of fabric and texture of history within that that you you're never going to get that back yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a small village in Kent, and it, it very much the pub and the church, of the, even in the like 1990s, the the, the centre of the village, the centre of the community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll still, you know, these days you'll find a pub that is also a little shop as well when there's nothing else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been nice to revisit the 18th century. I was uh, I was I, I dusted off my blackadder the other day and made sure I watched my episode about turnips, uh, which. Oh, yes. A special frisson now that we've learned. I don't know how it took us so long. I mean, we must have had turnips here since the Vikings were busy, you know, desecrating them. Uh, and it's taken us so long to, to really cherish them. I mean, that's one of the few good things that the Tories have done is to, is to get us to cherish turnips because we've got nothing else to eat, you know. Yeah, I'm looking forward to making my turnip bolognese later. <laughs> yeah, turnip surprise with nothing in it but turnips. <laughs> probably get edited out but um my son my um son's just got into blackadder and um he said i've just watched the episode where he got, becomes an mp and immediately i was reminded of the lines of i'm uh, i'm wearing uh, this is the worst day of my life i'm wearing a catskin white wind cheater i've just ruined a priceless turnip and now i'm about to be viciously murdered by a naked tunisian sock merchant yes and um he's going to a fancy dress party as emma hamilton's pussy wasn't he <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah you know i mean and i i think it's one of those just 
poisonous things about English society, particularly that, you know, these highly educated people from Eton, Harrow, Rugby, St. Paul's, Oxford and Cambridge, they're like infantile little dribbling babies if you put an, an honours list near them. I mean, mm -hmm. still just absolutely enthralled to this medieval silliness uh, about honours. And what I think this does is just kind of gloss over the fact that in the end, it's all money. And a lot of that money is dirty. But, you know, the British aristocracy is really an oligarchy. Everybody's happy to slag off Russian oligarchs while sitting there in the midst of one of the worst oligarchies in history. If, you know, running a society through public schools is not an oligarchy, I don't know what is. But, um, you know, one of, one of our members of the House of Lords is now the son of an ex-KGB agent, guy who turned up only once in the last year uh, to put his robes on, and of course appointed by Boris Johnson. But it's, yeah, it's, it's the ways to, to launder your dirty money. It just keeps on going and it, it never stops. If they can clean up Stanley Johnson, good luck to them, I don't know. Yeah, Richard, thanks very much for coming and talking to us about this. This is genuinely, this was something I'd never really thought of. And it, you're right, this is a cultural vandalism is absolutely disgusting. And also the, the views that the, the rich have. So it's disgusting on many, many different la layers. But can you mind, uh, when, when is your book on discuss, History of Disgust coming out? I hope end of March, early April. And it's actually going to be the first of a few. It's got such a big subject. It's going to be one on ecology and one on politics. And the one on politics I really hope to get out around about April next year. I think it's going to be nicely timed. And uh, the, the, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Disgusting yeah. politics is just every night, you know. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you definitely have to come back and talk, talk to us about that one. We can, that would uh... be great. So many thanks. Great, great hour. Thanks. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.